this must be the right house because there's a van here, a red van, with bumper stickers all over the back. One of them says, hug a musician, they never get to dance. Uh, bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. And then uh, another one on this side says, eat, sleep, folk, repeat. Um, and at the top, we know it's the right place, it says, what would Pete Seeger do? <laughs> Since Peggy Seeger was a child, she's been steeped in folk music, first in her native America, then in the UK. Her creative partnership with her husband Ewan McColl was the engine of the folk scene in Britain during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Peggy's own songs have become anthems for feminists, for anti-nuclear campaigners and for those fighting for social justice. Now in her 80s, her creativity has been undimmed. In 2015, she won the Radio 2 Folk Award for Best Original Song for Swim to the Star, written with her son Callum. After a life on the road, she settled here in Ifley in Oxford, and we've come to meet her at her home. Hello. Somebody was FaceTiming me. Oh, no problem. I hate, I hate it. Um, come on in. We were just reading your bumper stickers. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good oh, collection. Well, they're fun, aren't they? Yes. You don't need to take your shoes off. Are you sure? When I wake up in the morning, I'm 100 years old. My feet on the floor and I'm 99. A good hot shower and I'm looking at 80. After breakfast, I'm 79. Getting younger by the hour, gotta get home by midnight. And there's a wonderful view of the garden out here through this large window. Do you spend a lot of time out there when the weather's slightly better than it's it is It's beautiful now? to sit out there in the sun, and the sun shines right on that double seat. And I'd, I never take a book on tape out there, I never take anything to read. You just go out there and you just sit. I used to have a, a couple of hedgehogs here, but I haven't seen them in a long time, probably because there's a fox here, and foxes know how to unroll a hedgehog. Whereas we, if you go over to Mrs. Tiggywinkle, the place where they rehabilitate wildlife, they have a model of a hedgehog unroller. And it's the thing you place the hedgehog in and you could unroll it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Whereas really, if you tickle its stomach, you know, if you just reach in and tickle its stomach, it'll unroll. <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful creatures. They're just beautiful. Where do you keep your musical instruments? Here they are in here. At the other end of the room? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we just walk through? Yes. What you see down there is a 1929 Martin, and it's a 1906 Fairbanks banjo next to it. And the one next to it is made out of a Civil War ammunitions box. And it has no frets, and it sounds really thunky, like you're playing with rubber bands. And the one after that is me, Hopeful. It's an electric guitar. When you say hopeful? I 
I would love to play the electric guitar, but I very rarely do, and I don't know why. There's another banjo leaning up there as well. And that's my beloved. That's a long neck one that was made for me. It's one of the last Vega ones that was made. And it's one um, my, my brother modeled his Vega one on. Um, it's got three extra frets so that you can sing in different keys. That's Pete, are you talking about? My brother Pete, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, would, you make, would you play some of them for us? Yes, I, I can do that, yeah, Wonderful. without a problem. Okay, we'll start, I suppose, with the, uh, with the banjo. Mm-hmm. That would be wonderful. And it'll be a song I've never recorded, but which I've just re- remembered that I know. And, w- and the thing you hear in the background is not the loo, it's a, it's a little fountain that, <laughs> that keeps the room hydrated. And can I just ask about the photograph on the wall above your head there? My father and my mother. Right. And that's your mother as a young woman? Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's my mother about age 40, 45. Oh, is she really? Because she looks very youthful. Oh, yes. She? Well, she died when she was 53. When you were 18? Yeah. You've read the book. I have. <laughs> it's full of my, in my head because I finished it last night. Okay. So you've got the banjo on your lap. What are you going to sing for us? I saw my first mole when I was... This is the mole that crawls around on the ground, not the one that grows on you. And I lifted it up when I was about, I was 35 or 40, and it was astounding because it feels like dry water. You almost can't grasp it, it's so soft. Um, So I wish I was a mole in the ground.
Lunsford, one of the collectors, one of the singers that I listened to as a child. Only he's had a very low voice, can't you let your hair roll down? And uh, when my mother put it in her songbook, it wasn't I've been in the pen, I've been around the bend, because she wanted to kind of make it PC for children. banjo is very unusual. Um, I mean, it's very definitive. It has this note that just repeats all the way through. And even if you're playing something that doesn't go with it, and sometimes you, you can play those notes that don't go right, but that drone is always there no matter what you're playing. It's an old principle. You have it on bagpipes, and sometimes in uh, many of the older cultures, when they have several instruments that are playing together, they'll have one that just holds on to them all the way through. It's kind of like give you graph paper and the cardiograph of the, the melody, and that's something that I really like to do when I'm, when I'm playing. When did you first pick up the banjo? Um, I picked up the banjo... When I was 14 and a half, 15, and I only picked it up because my brother Mike got shingles in his eyes. Um, brother Pete turned up constantly playing the banjo, and I was fascinated by it. And Pete was much older than you, wasn't uh, he? Pete was born in 1919. I was born in 1935. Uh, but he was a constant visitor at the house. And, and when he, whenever he came, the banjo was there. And... I loved the rhythm of the banjo, and it had this great long neck because he had a long neck banjo from way, way back. And um, Mike got shingles in his eyes, and Mike uh, was not the musical one of the family. I was that. And he had to lie for six weeks in the dark on his back. And that was the time when Pete put out his banjo manual, How to Play the Five-String Banjo. And Mike, who was dyslexic, he said, that's stupid, you can't learn an instrument from a manual. And my mom, clever woman, she said, prove it, and went out and bought a banjo. She actually bought it from a nunnery. It was an old, it was an old Stuart, and it had beautiful inlay all, all the way up. I'd love to have it now. It's in Chicago somewhere, I think. And so Mike would lie on his back while I read out what you're supposed to do because he wasn't an instrumentalist, and I already played the guitar and the piano by that time. So I would take the banjo and show him. It was a bit of a, a tussle. Uh, you know. He said, you've got the guitar, you've got the piano, I'm going to play the banjo. But I took the banjo and played it, and we learned it together. Um, yeah. I could sit here and listen to you sing oh. all day, oh, dear. but this is called Folk on Foot. And we have to go outside and walk. OK, let's go outside and walk, and the sun is shining. Yeah, so the sun's come out beautiful. now, so it would be great. To be, if you would take us around your village, that would be wonderful. I'll take you around my garden first. Yes. Yes, we'd like to, yeah. Absolutely beautiful it is. 
I'll be modest and say every landlord should have a tenant like me. <laughs> what, because you care for the garden? I care for it. And I've planted all of this. This is my treasure. Oh, then we get through a gate. Oh, my goodness. I let this grow until it's just... And there's I have beehives back there. And this is sort of waist-high grass, really. And it's lovely. Like a wild meadow. We have a fantastic apple tree, and the, the locals come and they, they take the apples off and make apple juice, oh. Ifly apple juice. Have a Victoria plum. Uh, we have uh, black currants over there and gooseberries over there. But it's a, it's a wildlife place. I wanted to ask you about roots because you seem to me to have ricocheted all over the place I in your life. Roots. I have roots here, you know. Well, you feel that you're more rooted in England than you are Abs in the United States? Absolutely. Well, I left when I was 18, 19. And I was on the thumb for, I think, two or three, four years. Hitchhiking? Yeah, hitchhiking and just traveling wherever, wherever I pleased. Um, but I was entranced by England when I landed because everything was so close to everything else. And, you know, if you didn't like the scenery here, just go 10 miles north. Because <laughs> I think the geological periods just travel north, don't they? Let's go back to this little chicane here. And then... We can get back to the street. I like this really. I like the really. And it's a beautiful wooded lane. I'm going to hold on to you. Thank here. you. Yeah, there's a bit hot hold here, but um, now the sun's just coming through the trees. Mm -hmm. It looks really beautiful. Do you come down here for a walk often? I come down every other day. And this walk, I can walk all the way down to the river. Uh, I can walk one direction from the river into Oxford in about 25 minutes, if I feel like it. I can go the other direction uh, for about 45 minutes to a pub that has fantastic fish and chips. Uh, now you're talking my language. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a row of little cottages, old cottages. And down below this one to the right, uh, they've fixed this up. But you go down into the next uh, story down, and believe it or not, if you can picture this in your head, down there, there are two doors that were originally two cottages down there. Well, down below? Yes, this has been built up, built up, built up, built up until it's now a whole story higher. This, How extraordinary. It is, it is. So I don't know when these cottages are from, probably mid-Victorian era. My house is only, you see my house. Uh, the house I That's where you live. Yeah, it's only 1930s or something like that. Right. But do you like the historic nature of England as well? I love it. That's, that's the, I came back for a lot of reasons. The first is my children are all here. And I know a lot of people, their children just move away and then you lose track or you have to fly all over the place to see them. My father had to fly over here to see me, which he came every two or three years. And um, I like being near them. They all live in London. Well, you go on tour with them. Uh, I go That's on what you do when your 80th birthday I, happened. I do now, yes. <laughs> I didn't used to. So you did a tour with Neil and Callum, didn't you? Uh, I did one for my 80th birthday, but it makes more sense to tour with just one of them. So this year uh, I'll be travelling with Callum. Last year I travelled with Neil. 
and I travel with my daughter-in-law, who's my manager, with my son, and a sound engineer. So it's full production. <laughs> we get in a crew van, and I do nothing except sing. <laughs> I don't have they do to all the work. I don't have to unpack the merch. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> So we're walking through the village. That's our yes. little shop. Oh yes, lovely. Come over and look at it. This it's is run the community by, shop. It's run by volunteers on a two hourly basis. Let's see who's in there now. Okay, let's go in. Hello. Hello. Hi, I'm trying to remember your name, Helen. right? Helen. Helen. Hi. Hi. Hello, Helen. Hello. I'm Matthew. Hi, Matthew. We're recording a podcast with Peggy for, called Folk on Foot. Mm. Fantastic. And she's taking us for a walk around the village because yeah. it's about walking with folk musicians. So. Yep. Or better place. I, I gather this is a community shop. This is, is Ifley Community Shop. Yes. Look at this. Wow, it's, Look, about, it's about a yard that's long. <laughs> that is a fine. We should just explain to people about your mother because she was a classical composer mm. of in, in, incredible merit and also a, a, somebody who transcribed folk songs for the archives, didn't she? Yeah. She put herself through school. She went to music school in Chicago. And she was discovered there by the composer Henry Cowell when she was about 28. Henry Cowell was my father's student in Juilliard, a music college in New York. And he was a kind of composer, but nothing like my mum. So Henry Cowell comes back to New York and says, you've got to hear this woman, Ruth Crawford. And uh, my father invited her to come and study with him. And she came and studied with him became close to him and his, his three sons from a separated marriage, Charles, John, and Pete. She became part of their family. And then they discovered when she was just about to go to Europe to take up her Guggenheim Fellowship, it was the first female Guggenheim Fellowship in music in 1929, they discovered they were in love. She was away for a year, uh, came back and started composing again, but by that time the, the depression was in full swing and my father decided that the kind of music they were doing was music for musicians and it wouldn't make any money. My father was invited to go to Washington by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to work on his WPA project and he became really heavily invested in folk song and collection of folk songs. And my mother began to swing over to working with folk songs. Uh, she had kind of been uh, made aware of them by Carl Sandburg, the Chicago poet. She taught piano to Sandburg's children and worked on one of his books, The American Songbag. But once she started really transcribing music for the Lomax books in the 30s and 40s, and for Botkin books. This is Alan Lomax, the, yep. the famous folk song collector, yep. who was a regular visitor, presumably, when you were a oh, child. Oh, yes, he was. Yeah, a great big man who, who, who sang like a bullhorn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a Texan, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, he was. Uh, born, bred, and never anything else. So would the tapes be, I'm saying tapes now, but they were probably records uh, that they were recorded on in the first place. Were they delivered to your mother and then she had to write them out on the stave? They weren't delivered to her. She and I often went down to the Library of Congress, to the archive, because a lot of these collectors, it was part of the WPA project, was to go down to the library, uh, go out to people, record. I think you recorded right onto records. I recorded once right onto an aluminium record, 
and my father was gathering up the the threads as they came off of the of the aluminium record. Uh, they, they sounded rather tinny, and you played them with a thorn needle. You have to find just the right thorns. <laughs> but my earliest memory is of large 16-inch aluminium records, and uh, one or two cardboard records from the, during the war when they didn't want to use a lot of metal. There weren't a lot of cardboard records, but I remember the Miners' Union put out one of the Miners' Prayer. I keep listening for the whistles in the morning, for the mine is still no sound is in the air. And it was one of those songs uh, that I, I dislike, although it was a Miners' song, and it was put out by the Union. It had uh, begging the rich, Oh, you rich men in the city, won't you have a little pity and just listen to the miner's prayer and asking the rich to have pity is stupid. They don't. They won't, you know, any more than they will now. Is, you know? is there a song from that period that you could sing for us or one of the songs that you learned when you were younger that you could sing for us Today? Uh, if you give me the guitar, I could do that. Yeah, I'll pass it over to you. Take this one back. Yeah. My good guitar is actually off being repaired, so, and I haven't changed the strings. Listen to that. Rubber bands. I keep listening for the whistles in the morning, for the mine is still no sound is in the air. And my children wake up crying in the morning For the cupboard is so empty and so bare Oh, their little feet are oh so cold they stumble And we have to pin the rags upon their backs And our home is broken down and very humble as the wintry wind comes pouring through the cracks How I hate to hear the hungry children crying While we have some mm, to do their share Oh, you rich men in the city, won't you have a little pity And just listen to our miners' prayer down below the surf, down below the earth, coal is waiting, only waiting till we seek it from its bed. While above the earth our children, they are starving, and all that we can do is bow our heads. If we only had enough to clothe and feed them And to hear the hungry children sing and play Oh, if we could give these things to them who needs them That would be a miner's happy day How I hate to hear the hungry children crying While I have two hands that want to do their share Oh, you rich men in the city, won't you have a little pity and just listen to our miners' prayer? That's all there was to it. And there were lines that I can't remember because I haven't sung that in years, <laughs> partly because I don't like it. Yeah. You know? Because it's a supplicant song. It's a, song. It's a supplicant, yeah. 
There were union songs. If the boss won't talk, don't take a walk. Sit down, sit down. Sit down, just take a seat. Sit down and rest your feet. Sit down, you've got them beat. Sit down, sit down. Um, but it was a very easy one that you could say, and then everybody sings, sit down, sit down. I remade this for the occupation, you know, uh, the, uh, in front of St. Paul's. I, I made oh, really? A, you know, I made a new version to it. It's interesting that the two things that came out of your childhood then were that you were obviously steeped in folk music, that was going on in the house, but politics too was a big issue. Not a lot of politics. Oh, really? No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Um, we were a progressive family, but we didn't talk politics much, not much. We sang union songs. I am a union woman, brave as I can be. I do not like the bosses, and the bosses don't like me. (laughs) Join the NMU, come and join the NMU, you know. My husband asked the boss for a job. This is what he said. Bill Jackson, I can't work you, sir. Your wife's a Russian red. <laughs> Join the NMU, National Miners Union, you know, things like that. And I made them part of my, my repertoire. And it was just automatic that you would believe in the unions. And I still believe in unions. I think that's the only way people can protect themselves. Uh, so I grew up from about the age of one to about nine or ten, just listening to my mother playing these 16-inch records. Uh, I mean, we'd be playing in the corner, and my mother would be playing chain gang songs, gospel songs, laments of mothers left with a baby in their arms. The one I remember most was a song called Bad, Bad Girl, which I sing quite differently from the way I heard it on the record. The way I heard it on the record was a recording of Ozella Jones, who was uh, recorded in the Rayford State Penitentiary in Florida in 1926 by the Lomaxes. And she sang very high. I've been a bad, bad girl, wouldn't treat nobody right, way high. But I decided that I was going to imagine it differently. And to me, you know, she just sat in her cell and crooned this song all day long, apparently. She was traumatized by the fact that they nearly executed her. And the second verse of that song is just mesmerizing, you know, to a little kid who was always being naughty, me. (laughs) Judge, please don't kill me. I won't be bad no more. I'll listen to everybody, something I never done before. Now I'm so sorry, even the day I was born. So I know that song by heart, you know. It's only three verses, but very hard to transcribe. And and so what what happened to your mother's transcripts when she'd finished them? Um, She would put them in the books, uh, the Lomax books. She had to simplify everything. But I learned a lot from her, the, the way she transcribed. And when it came to do my own songbook, which I have in the other room, it has 150 of my songs, and Ewan McCall's songbook, which has 200, I followed her precept, which was to line up in the transcription, on the page, um, the lines of the poetry. You don't just carry on until you get to the end of the line and then go to the next line when you're writing the transcription down. If the song is in quatrain form, you have four lines of music. 
and you see them one right above the other, so you see the relation. You see it as a poem as well as a song. Um, and she taught me how to transcribe. I was transcribing simple songs by the time I was 10. She really, she is my big grief that she died when she was 53. She didn't see any of her children going into music. She didn't see any of her grandchildren. And she was just beginning to compose again. When you get to my age, you think a lot about your childhood. And you think about, unfortunately, you think about a lot of your griefs. Uh, you think about a lot of your guilt, because uh, all mothers have guilt, I'm afraid, about something that's part of our job. <laughs> I really started thinking about my mom more after I reached about 50, 55, 60, because that was when my mother died. That was when I began to realize that I'm actually older than my mother ever was. I'm 30 years older than she ever had the luck to be. She died at 53, and I'm 84 next week. I think you have a poem about oh, being do. older than your mother, don't oh, you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my mother is younger than me. She died at 53 with plump red cheeks and black, black braids. My cheeks are lined now. My hair is grey. She sits at my knee, her head inclined to accept my care. I comb and I braid her hair as she once did mine and... As I sing, she tells me things about her new school. As I grew my wings, she opened the window and out she flew. I am 84. My mother is 53. Strange, my mother is younger than me. I can't tell you how poignant it is, Peggy, to hear you say that with your mother's face looking uh -huh. down from yeah. behind your head. You know, I was 18. I was horrible, and I was not nice to her. Yeah, you didn't have a chance to have that no, I didn't. cyclical no, I didn't. relationship that people have with their parents, where in yeah. later life you and we have would a mature have, relationship. We would have been comrades after I got to be 27, 28. when I was 21. We decided finally to live together when I was 24. The timetable of your relationship started in... Uh, March 1956, and it went right through the summer, right through the autumn, and I finally left in, in December. Uh, it was just too much for me. Went well, it was back. very intense, was it? Very. Because he fell very passionately in love with you. Did you fall passionately no, in love no, with him? No, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, I just loved him. And I loved the sound of his singing, and he was a fascinating person. But he was very pushy, very pushy. You know, it was his midlife crisis. <laughs> and I was a young girl, I was half his age. Uh, so I went back to the States. I wasn't really going to come back. I was giving up on it. So I went to California, where my father lived. I got a job to sing on Los Angeles television or radio, I can't remember what it was. And they wanted a modern love song. I was singing all of these sad, you know, love songs from the American folk. They wanted something that was hopeful. 
occasionally Ewan would call. He didn't have money. And transatlantic calls were, you know, you, you had to mortgage your house to get it, excepting he was renting. So I was on a phone call and I said, I need this song. They want a short song that's that's love song that's happy. And he said, how about this? And he sang it over the phone. The first time ever I saw your face. Yep. And I just, I liked it. So I just took it down on manuscript paper because I knew how to do that and started singing it. He never sang it again. People have told me that actually he had sung it and I think he probably would have. But when you got back together, he never sang it to you? No, 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 no. It was, no. My, it was mine. He gave it to me. Right. And so when you sang it, it was very different from the version that people would have heard Roberta Flack sing, wasn't it? Well, what happened is that at that time, whenever we wanted to copyright a song, I would write out the music and send it to New York, where our publisher was. I don't know if I wrote this out or if I recorded it, but for some reason it was transcribed and sent around and people got a different idea of what the tune is. And it's a very different tune that, that Roberta Flack sang from what, what Ewan made up. What did you think of it? Didn't like it at all. I didn't like it at all. It, or for one thing, it was dragged out, it was milked. And I still think it was milked, but I, I like it now. I just regard it as different. Uh, but there's over th 300 covers of it now, all in different musical styles. And as long as the royalties keep coming in, that's fine. <laughs> and when you sing it now, yeah. it must take on all sorts of different meanings for you. Um, for a long time after he died, I couldn't sing it at all. Um, it's a passionate love song. I wrote a lot of passionate love songs for Irene, my, my, my next life partner. Um, but when you sing a love song, it's got to be really what you're thinking of. You're so do you think of different people that you have loved when you sing I've it? I've only loved two people. I've only had two people I would dare to sing that song to or about. And that's you and an Irene. Mm, yeah, been there, done both. Yeah. So after he died, I had a lot of trouble singing it. I can imagine. But, but the one thing that it did for you was to transform your fortunes in terms oof. of the money. Oh, gosh, yes. And as I said, it's been covered over 300 times. And some of the covers are hilarious, absolutely hilarious. <laughs> There's a country and western one with very fast banjo, and it's got about as much passion as a bunch of frozen peas. <laughs> no. I don't know. I don't understand. It's a song that is deep, and it has heartbeat. And you have to sing it with heartbeat. And there's even a rap version of it. There's gospel versions of it. There's Barbara... I was going to say barbecue quartets. Barber, <laughs> barber, barbershop quartet versions of it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That sounds a bit painful. <laughs> I've gotten used to it. I've gotten used to it. I would love to sing you a song that I made out of someone else's experience. That would be great. Because one of the most wonderful things that I learned from working with you and McCall and making the radio ballad is that if you want to make a song about something you know bugger all about, go to somebody who does know about it. Don't imagine that you know what it's like to be in a wheelchair, because you don't. Uh, and I met Jennifer Jones at Greenham Common. 
It was a big demonstration, 30,000 women and about 6,000 police. You might have noticed on my um, mantle in the other room, I have a piece of Greenham Common Fence. Yeah, it's a treasured piece. And uh, I saw Jennifer Jones in the middle of this melee of fighting police and women and everything. And she, she was in a wheelchair, and she would have been about 55 or 60, and her friends were helping her hold the bolt cutters so she could bolt cut through the fence. I tried bolt cutters. They're delicious. <laughs> They're wonderful, you know. I kept a pair down uh, once, you know, it got trouble with you and being so ill. When I felt really frustrated, I'd go down and use the bolt cutters <laughs> and on a piece of pipe, and it was just, well, just go snip. Uh, so I interviewed Jennifer Jones and made a song, which I call Woman on Wheels. So um, the first thing she said to me, and I went to record her, and I recorded her for four hours. And she just wanted me to know everything. The first thing she said was, I'm a woman on wheels. I'm a woman on wheels, but I still got my brain. I'm gonna tell you how it feels to be your own railway train rolled down to the corner. Put on your brakes, I'm gonna tell you what it takes to be a woman on wheels. Roll on Over the holes The bumps, the cracks Roll on Do you remember that day We were running for the train And my tire went flat Roll on That man over there The one under the hat Trying so hard not to stare You get used to that Still is better than looking Than looking away You get that every day you're a woman on wheels Roll on Pity me and I'll pity you Roll on All they ever want to talk to me about Is the things that I can't do Roll on When it comes to curbs When it comes to stairs I've got my special words and I don't mean prayers when it comes to the stores To reach the merchandise is a major exercise For the woman on wheels Roll on I want a chair that can levitate Roll on I want to race up ramps Run down stairs Wouldn't that be great? Roll on I went down to Greenham and I was cutting the fence. Cops pulled me out of the way. Then they waded in and said, you'll never get arrested, a little lady like you. I says, who are you talking to? I'm a woman on wheels. I said, hold on. I've got my rights to demonstrate, roll on. Next time I went down, I took a dozen bolt cutters and a dozen wheelchair mates roll on. I want to be alone, but I'm always under care. I've got this urge to roam. Me and my chair, we're together for life, not together for love. And there's things I need more of. I'm a woman on wheels, roll on. So many places I can't go roll on 
I want to lie in a field with the flowers Or run on a beach with the sand between my toes Roll on Well, I need you You need me to tell you about a different view Of the world you see, about the pain I feel About the fight I've won About how to do some little things You think can't be done Roll on With the deaf and blind The lame and halt Roll on There's money around To help us all If the crippled system Holds us back Keeps the people on wheels Off the mainline track Jennifer Jones She was wonderful And you met her in Greenham Common I met her at Greenham Common Yeah And, and I, I went up to her when, when she was actually At Greenham Common And I knelt down by the chair In the middle of all of this fighting that was going on and I said I'm a songwriter I would really like to write a song about you and she didn't even look up she says I'm busy <laughs> snip well, snip did snip, you ever play snip. the song to her oh she oh I had you had to yeah if you so, make up a song about somebody you have to take it to them was she pleased to have a song written yes. about her I think so yeah I, I'd yeah. be very flattered if somebody wrote a song about me surely there's a song in everybody I could interview you and write a song about you if you were so, you know. Uh You'd have to tell me some pretty personal things, though, you know. And so you must have developed a great skill as an interviewer. I don't know if I've developed a skill. I've I've developed an ability to listen and an ability to ask the same question several times because when you do in-depth recording, uh, we learned that from the radio ballads. We went to Sam Larner, the fisherman, and asked him questions, and then we went back again and asked the same questions. And he was a bit bewildered, because he had a really good memory. He was 80-something. And um, Let me just, let me just remind people about the radio ballads, because these were mould-breaking. These are, these are radio programmes that inspired me and somebody who's had a 40-year career in radio. Okay. The whole the, idea was to have an hour-long programme that consisted of interviews with people whose profession you were looking at, the effect that the work that people did in that profession or that job, the effect it had on them. Real working Real people, people. Working people. Who the BBC in the, in, before this would not have given airtime to. Uh, they would have recorded them and then vetted it very carefully and given the words to actors. Right. So we would record, say Sam Larder, he was a fisherman, herring fisherman. This is an example. Go to his house, record him. Uh, come back and listen to what you've recorded. And if it's not what you want in terms of poetry, of the way people express themselves, because once you really get into somebody's head, they will tell you in language you wouldn't dream of yourself. Like Jennifer Jones said to me, do you remember that day we were going running for the train and my tire went flat? What? You never dream of a wheelchair tire going flat. But so... You interview Sam Larner. Then you go back and you ask the same questions. And he's a bit bewildered at this point. I thought I answered that before. But so he answers it in a different way. And then you go back a third time. And by that time, he's really irritated. And you really you get down below the skin. And he says different things. Because he realizes he's got to say it in a different way. Then you and I would listen to the recordings and take out the pieces that are best expressed. Um, and then Ewan would make songs out of those words and out of those attitudes, out of those ideas. Then I would uh, put instrumentation. He would make a script, 
And then once the script was made, Charles Parker would put in the sound effects. So he was you, the BBC producer. Producer. Good for you, yeah. So there's sound effects, there's instrumentation, there's songs, and there's, and there's talk. And the recording process must have been incredibly challenging because this was before multi-tracking. Oh, yes. We were all in the studio. <laughs> I don't think people understand that these days. Uh, but back in those days, you had the speech on analogue tape, you had the uh, effects on great big um, records, uh, vinyl records, and everybody had to uh, record at the same time. The musicians were there the as well. The musicians were there and the singers were there. You have the director and he's pulling everything together. And behind him is the person who is on what the, we call the grams, the gramophone records. And she's got to drop the needle on exactly the, 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 the sound effect track at the right time. You have a sequence that lasts, say, three minutes, and it's about going to sea. And you have the musicians down on the floor uh, with their microphones all in. If there's a trumpet or there's drums, they have to be behind a baffle. And then there's me, uh, I'm directing it. And then there's somebody on a big, what we call TR-90. I'm seeing it in my head. Big machine in which you could start a tape of the actuality, the person speaking. So you had to feed in the instrumentation, the singers, the actuality, the sound effects, all at the same time. And it was all recorded on a little piece of quarter-inch analog tape. You, it's miraculous. You couldn't, if anybody made a mistake, the whole thing had to be done again. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so, it, it, and we all worked together, and we, we worked off um, scores that I wrote out, unless you were Bruce Turner, in which case you just put the chord down and he would, he would improvise because right. he couldn't read music. Are you still writing songs? Not as much as I want to. It's with not traveling around and singing a lot. Uh, I know what needs to be written, definitely. It's just for some reason I can't get the oomph. I feel that things are so tenuous and the whole global heating thing is just so serious that I know what I know what's needed. I just don't do it. I just <clears throat> before we get on to that, yeah. see the pile of chips over there. Yeah, wood chips. It, it was the most glorious chestnut tree. It was about three hundred years old. Why did that have to come down? <sighs> That's what I wanted to paint on the stump. Why? Uh, you still feel as passionately about things as you always have, oh, presumably. Yes, I do. But I try not to think about a lot of things. I wondered if your perspective had changed over the years, because, you know, as, as we change and mature and get older, uh, we, we have different yeah. views on things. But do you feel your political perspective is still the same as it always was, that there are it's injustices that need to be righted? So. Much more so. Uh, a lot of it is gender-based. Uh, I think the world is basically run by men. And men take risks. Men make war. 
men can do things to each other that women don't do, you know. One lot torturing another. And, you know, I know there are women who've done awful things, but on the whole, I think men have a, an attitude towards life that I don't think it's safe to put the world in their hands. There's a, uh, there's a song by Ivor Cutler, the Scottish poet, that I heard at a Korean Polwart concert, which is just a, the line repeated is, women of the world take over. Yeah. Because the men have really had a go and they've ruined everything, yeah. so please take over. The, the women who are allowed into takeover positions are often half men already in their attitude. They have to be to, to get there. They have to, you know... They... You need a social revolution, really, don't you, to, uh, not... to change some of the things that you're talking about? Yeah, it's very hard because so much of the, the structure is set up already. And, but, you know, there's more and more happening, but it's happening so slowly. And do you see beacons of hope? Do you see people who are following behind you, who you admire and respect for the oh, campaign they're not, that they're running? They're not following behind me. They're making their own, their own roads. Uh, I won't say I've been forgotten, but certainly I've been sidetracked. Uh, people come along, they say, you're a legend, you're an icon. And maybe I am in certain s sense, but I should really be out there doing more than I'm doing now. But I haven't got the physical energy to do it. I have a lot of ailments and I'm just trying to stay vertical and breathing. But I think if I was working with a group of women, uh, songwriters or singers, I think I would write songs. Mm. Some way of getting them out there. Yeah. We've arrived at the church. This yes, is well, quite a significant church, isn't it's it? It's a wonderful church. How it, old is it? 11th century it was started, and, and it still has a lot of its old features. It's a lovely church. Can we go into the churchyard? I we love can, churchyards. We can certainly, if we have time to do that, we can yeah. do that. I come down here and just sit in the pews, and I'm not a religious person in that sense. There's a sense of peace in a place like this, though, isn't I know. there? Well, every Wednesday you can hear the bells from where I live, it's absolutely wonderful because I always wanted to live within the, the sound of, of church bells, and I do now. I can mm. hear them in the, in the distance. Peggy, it's been an absolute privilege to spend so much time with you. Thank you for giving us your time, and thank you for giving us your mind and your stories and your music. Thank you, Matthew, because I've been interviewed a lot recently, but I don't think anyone has worked so hard and so successfully at keeping me on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> Not an easy task. <laughs> uh, no. No. I'd love to sing you the most egotistical song I've ever made up. That would be wonderful. It's one I made up as an encore. Okay. <laughs> it's assuming that you're gonna get an encore. <laughs> <laughs> when I wake up in the morning, I'm a hundred years old. My feet on the floor and I'm 99 A good hot shower and I'm looking at 80 After breakfast I'm 79 Getting younger by the hour Gotta get home by midnight It's a beautiful day and I'm 64 In my new red shoes The kitchen is a dance floor Lunchtime and I'm in my prime 50 and I'm heading for 49 Getting younger by the hour Gotta get home by midnight An hour ago I was 41 
I said I was 39 But now I'm 20 heading for my teens Hormones driving me out of my mind If I stay any longer I'll be buying those blue jeans The ones manufactured with the holes all over Getting younger by the hour Gotta get home by midnight when the clock strikes twelve, nature resumes her own gravitational plan. Then I'm hitting the road with father time dragging me by the hand. But I'm gonna leave a little glass slipper behind before the rats start hauling my van. Getting younger by the hour, gotta get home by midnight. Prince Charming is standing there He gazed into my blue eyes He said they're the color of time He knelt down by my chair And that little glass slipper just fitted me fine He's waiting for me now in the moonlight He said come home whenever you like I want to run my hands through his curly gray hair So good night, I gotta get home <laughs> Well, if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or follow us to make sure you get all our episodes just as soon as they're launched. And please rate and review us so others can find us. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation to help us produce more wonderful episodes, you can become a patron by going to folkonfoot.com and clicking on Support Us. To keep up with the latest information, you can sign up for our newsletter at folkonfoot.com or follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram with the handle at folkonfoot. We hope you enjoy listening to Folk on Foot just as much as we love making it. <laughs>